ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. So I have this large painting and I think I'm dipping the paintbrush into this ogre color. And by mistake, I dipped it into magenta. And as soon as I saw that, I took a paper towel and I start rubbing it out, you know, as if some big mistake had been made. And, you know, to call it a mistake is silly because these mistakes make paintings and make the products we're producing actually more interesting. This is Ellen Langer, professor of psychology at Harvard University, also known as the mother of mindfulness. Her latest book is The Mindful Body. So if you want to get advice on how to make a decision from someone, it's her. Although she's very much like me in how she makes decisions herself. I could buy a house or a car in minutes, yet to decide which candy bar I might want can take forever. And Ellen says this is because everything we've learned about decision-making, well, it's... That's all wrong. Hello, I'm Lisa Leong, and in this episode of This Working Life, we're diving deep into decision-making, what we need to know before drawing up pros and cons lists, and how we can feel better about our decisions in the future. So we're looking at decision-making big and small, and I did read a scary statistic that the average person makes 35,000 decisions a day. Ellen, I wanted to reveal, so I used to be a lawyer and I changed to become a radio presenter pretty much like that. I didn't think about it. (laughs) I just did it. And yet all those little decisions, like what to order at a restaurant or what to wear in the mornings, I just cannot make decisions. What is going on with me and decision-making, Ellen? (laughs) Well, the way you made the important decision is the way we should make all of our decisions. When you can't decide, let's say, between two options, that means psychologically they're equally valuable to you. And what people should do then is just choose one of the two and randomly choose. You can have a little a heuristic that says the first choice that comes to mind is the one I'm going to take. All right. Now, people, and that's the way you made your decision. Um, So you have everything, when we're faced with a decision, the alternatives are either psychologically the same or they're different. Now, when they're the same, you should treat them as such that it doesn't matter. Okay. When they're different, what people tend to do is pull in information hoping to move the two decisions apart. You know, if I said to you, do you want A or B? It makes no difference to you. If I said, do you want $100 or $1,000? There's no decision, right? You would just take the $1,000. So what people do, and not inappropriately, is gather information to make the things that look the same look different. Mm. That's fine. The only problem is that you never know Uh, what the next piece of information might suggest to you. Okay, Ellen, but what about the pros and cons lists and spreadsheets of the information that we do have? You can't have costs, every item have a cost and a benefit. They'll add up to zero. And so, um, and everything can be understood as positive or negative. No matter what it is, there's an advantage, disadvantage. So if I said to you, do you want to meet my friend Zoe? She's very impulsive. You'd say, no, why would I want to meet her? 
if I said to you, do you want to meet my friend Zoe? She's very spontaneous. You say, yeah, I want, but spontaneous and impulsive are the same thing. Mm. All right. And so you can't sensibly add up costs and benefits because again, it's going to add, if you do it properly, it's going to end up uh, adding up to zero. So it's not objective. It's basically we're trying to make something finite and concrete where you're saying it isn't and we can't. That's exactly right. But if you if you look at people who are ambivalent, these are people, it's sort of mindfulness gone wild. Because as soon as they come up with a decision, they realize, oh, but here's this other way of looking at it. Oh, here's another piece and so on. And the only problem, the person who's ambivalent and all of us when we're being ambivalent is the mistaken belief that there's a correct decision. And if I just keep going with this process, I, I'll end up in a better place. And that just doesn't happen. Now, people don't do cost-benefit analyses. Um, they think they should. I want to free people and say, no, you don't need to bother with a cost-benefit analysis. And the bottom line to all of this, Lisa, is kind of interesting. Rather than spend your time trying to make the right decision, what people should be doing is making the decision right. Okay, I'm just going to repeat that for you because I love this so much. Rather than spending your time trying to make the right decision, you should spend your time instead making the decision right. So how can you do that? Well, you know, let's say you're making a decision. Should I ask the boss for a raise? And you say, well, I should because after all, Susie and Ernie are making more money than I am and I don't think they're any better than I am. But you hesitate to do it because if you ask for a raise, you might be told you're fired because they really don't value you and you could go crazy with this. Um, it, it doesn't, whatever the decision is, whether it's work-related, relationship-related, no matter what, there is no proper way of deciding doing a cost-benefit analysis. Decision-making requires prediction. When you have faced with your two choices, you're trying to predict how you're going to feel about them. Mm. Prediction is an illusion. This is very hard for people to understand, that we can predict for the group, in some sense, if I took you to a Mercedes parking lot, and let's say there are 100 cars there, and I said to you, okay, randomly choose one of them, and we're going to see if it starts when you turn the key on the ignition. And if it does, I'll give you a million dollars. If it doesn't, you give me a million dollars. People will not take the bet because they know, even with the finest automobile, sometimes there are limits. And scientists know this you know, very well. You can never predict the individual case. So we know most of those Mercedes will start, but that doesn't mean we know any particular one will start. Well, as individuals, we don't care what the group, I want to know, is this thing going to be good for me? Is the boss going to you know, take my head off when I ask for the raise? Is he going to give me more work, less work? Is he going to say, yes, I should have given you a raise a long time ago? There's no way to know. So essentially, to make our decisions right, we just have to own them because we can't predict anything with accuracy. Ellen did an experiment with her Harvard students to track their decision-making and emotional states. I gave them an assignment. I said, okay, I want you to spend this week, that's until we meet again in a week, not making any decisions. What I want you to do is flip a coin, 
decide that the first uh, alternative that occurs to you is what you're going to choose, wh whatever little rule you want to use, but no decisions. And they did this. They came back and they had a wonderful stress-free week. They made a decision. They made it work. Whenever you make a decision, it's to take some action. And then you take the action and you can't go back because you're not the same person anymore. So um, with my students, I might say, you made a decision, should you go to Harvard or Yale? And once you decided for whatever reason to go to Harvard, you can never see what the other decision, the road not taken would have been. Because if at that point you leave Harvard and you go to Yale, well, you're you know, a year older, a year more experienced, um, and so on. They, they, in some sense, had permission not to drive themselves crazy with this. Now, it's interesting because, to my mind, stress is perhaps the number one health problem. And um, most of the stress that we experience comes from making decisions. And the worry about, is it the right decision? Are we doing what we should be doing? So what might that impact be on us and our work? Well, um, you know, clearly, if you're stressed, your mind is elsewhere, not on your work. Your health is going to suffer. Uh, that means uh, you're not going to have the energy or even the number of hours, days to put in to do the work that you're doing. I think that what people need to understand is that stress is psychological. Again, events don't cause stress. What causes stress are the views you take of it. So if you vary those views, you will diminish the stress. Stress requires two things. First, it requires a belief that something's going to happen. Second, that when it happens, it's going to be awful. If people make a mistake at work, and uh, the culture both in Australia and the States, Europe, all over the place, believe that work has to be stressful. So we should uh, disabuse ourselves of that. And we need to understand that virtually everything is mutable. Everything can be changed. If it doesn't fit you, change it. If it doesn't fit you, change it. Excellent. But what happens if the decision to change jobs or even career is made for you? What happens then? I had a, a wonderful career in the media, both in television and radio. Thoroughly enjoyed every little bit of it. Uh, but as I sort of hit 50, I could sort of feel that it was moving on in a direction that didn't really work for me and I felt like I wasn't keeping up. So I decided, well, it, actually, to be honest, the, the main catalyst was I got sacked and did not have a plan B. So I thought to myself, well, I never want to be in this position again. I would like to be in charge of my own destiny. Hi, my name is Bridget Duclos and I am a practising counsellor after going back to study uh, very late in life. And I'd always uh, been interested in counselling, mainly just because friends used to say, oh, you'd be a good counsellor, <laughs> maybe because I listened, I'm not sure. So I decided to go back and do a postgrad um, diploma of counselling and then I had the big decision, what do I do next? Do I go and work for an agency, which is probably what a new counsellor would do usually. But because I was, you know, mid-50s by now, I thought I'm just going to bite the bullet and start my own business. And I now um, practice three days a week. I think to change jobs later in life is a big challenge, but I think it's incredibly empowering. 
Um, I think sometimes when you've been doing the same thing for so long, you don't think you've got the skills or the ability to actually do anything else, and that was probably my greatest fear. I think any advice I would give to someone is give it a go. Um, the worst thing that can happen is you learn a lot, um, whether it means you're going back to study or whatever it is, and I think it's it's very good for you. It's given me a real sense of self and really helped me understand who I am better. But it's a job I love because it's a job where age is a, is a bonus and a benefit. I think life experience, you can't count for that. So I feel like I've somehow stumbled upon something which I'm very passionate about and which will serve me for the you know rest of my working career. Hi, my name is Janneke Blijlevens. I'm a senior lecturer in marketing at RMIT University with uh, an expertise in consumer behavior and behavioral intervention design. So how did I get in the career that I am in? I, I did follow my gut a lot while I was studying. Uh, so first I wanted to do developmental psychology and ended up going into um, cognitive and neuropsychology. Then I went to a design school to do my PhD and now I'm in a business school. And people often tell me that I'm a bit eclectic in my career, but it's really always been around how we can use behavioral science and design and design thinking to make a better world. Janneke used her gut to guide her in her career. And she and I both like the application of design thinking. And she says that if you're a manager or a leader, you can use design thinking to help your team make decisions that are both impactful and satisfying. Design thinking is a process uh, that is actually evolved from the business world or innovation world, but taken from design practitioners, where we're taking a bit more of a creative approach to problem solving. And this has been used a lot by organizations to uh, design, for example, behavioral interventions or behavior change policies. Businesses often use it to uh, get their uh, employees to be more creative and innovative pulling away from your own biases, pulling away from your own heuristical thinking and your own way of thinking, of making shortcuts in your thinking and decision-making and really focusing on how the people you're designing for think and feel and what their concerns are and then to design solutions for that. So if you are wanting to create a bit more creativity and innovation in the problem-solving abilities of your employees, you might start to think about including some design thinking activities that will kind of bring that out and reduce the bias thinking that a lot of people have just by nature of doing what they do every day and thinking and making decisions like they do every day. I'd love to go to a big career jump. So if somebody is thinking, particularly at the beginning of the year, do you know what? I feel like this is not the career for me anymore. I'm going to switch roles or what do I do next? Can you run through how to make the decision right, Ellen? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's, you know, um, it, it doesn't even have to be about a big career move. But I say to people, you know, I had many friends who years ago when we used to go to the movies because we didn't have the giant TVs. And they would sit there for two hours and all they would do is complain when they leave. And to me, you have two choices. You either make it meaningful, make it a fun experience, or leave. And it's the same thing when deciding on a job. 
The job itself isn't good or bad. The job is changing. The people around you are changing. Everything is changing. Now, you can make the decision to make it work, just as in a relationship. But if you don't make the decision to make it work, you should leave. Life is short. And um, I think these people who are spending um, 40 hours a week being miserable is, is sad. And so I'm hearing then that it's about really tapping into how you feel about things. Well, it's controlling how you feel. Events don't cause stress. What causes stress are the views we take of events. The more mindful we are, the more potential understandings we have of events. And by the way, when you're stressed, most people should just ask themselves, is it a tragedy or an inconvenience? Because everybody gets crazed and almost always it's just an inconvenience. What about decision regret? Have you ever regretted a decision in your life and what do you make of decision <laughs> regret? Okay, you know, um, I hate to admit that I'm human and so I'm sure in the distant past when I was younger, um, I did it on occasion. Oh, why did I do this rather than that? But now that I know more and have thought more about this, decision regret is mindless. That the assumption is the other alternative would have been better. Mm. It could have been worse. There's no way to know. And that's the important thing for people to understand. Everything is uncertain because everything is changing. Everything looks different from different perspectives. But that uncertainty shouldn't scare people. People get scared in uncertainty because they think they're supposed to know. But nobody knows for sure. And so the experience of gathering information about these alternatives is not useless because then you have the information, you know, so and that can be fun, but um, it's not going to lead to a better decision. If you've ever made a big decision in your life, you've probably also had some feelings of regret. Like Ellen said, we're all human. Dr. Adrian Camilleri from the University of Technology, Sydney, did a study while he was working in America that looked at people's decision-making and how they felt afterwards. So in my research project, I found several hundred participants. They were all based in the United States, and they ranged in age from 20 years old all the way up into their 70s. And I asked them to outline for me the 10 biggest decisions that they had made in their life so far. And for each decision, I asked the participants to tell me what age they made that decision at and a number of other follow-up questions, such as to what extent that decision required change, to what extent they used a more analytical or intuitive approach to making that decision, and in retrospect, how good or bad was that decision. So I had collected thousands and thousands of decisions by the end, and the first job was to put them into some kind of structure. And so having read through those thousands and thousands of decision, I came up with a structure that had nine categories and 58 decision types. And so the, the categories were ones that wouldn't surprise you, like career, education, family, finances. Um, and then within those, so for example, within career, there were decisions to start a new job or to quit a new job, to start a new business, to close a business, these kinds of decisions. And retirement was also in that category. And when we looked at 
the decision types that were evaluated as most positive. The decisions related to self-development, so improving oneself and also career-related decisions, so to start a job or to change jobs, these tended to be rated as among the most positive evaluated decisions. So what did he learn about how people came to regret their decision? Almost have this sliding doors moment where we can envision what the world may have looked like had we made a different decision. Regardless of what you choose, you know, people are fairly happy with who they are as a person and who they are as a person is based on the decisions that they've made in the past. So even decisions that maybe at the time uh, were regrettable, over the long term, they become meaningful parts of our lives and become aspects of who we are as people. So we can, I guess, reframe negative outcomes um, after experiencing decisions as positive experiences. Another finding from the regret literature is that in the short term, let's say over hours, days, or weeks, people tend to regret the things that they had done. Um, So for example, you might regret saying something to a colleague or taking on a project and just being overwhelmed. Uh, But over time, months and years, decades later, those smaller regrets tend to fade. And the thing that gets stuck in people's mind are the decisions that they didn't take, the actions that they didn't pursue, such as moving across country to pursue a high-risk startup or something like that. So that's also something to be aware of, this dynamics of regret, whether you're trying to minimize the short-term regret or the regrets that you'll have many decades down the road. So just to recap, our decisions make us who we are and anything we might regret doing today we'll forget, but anything we don't do we might regret for a longer time. For example, if you decide to not apply for that dream job because you think it's a long shot, you'll likely regret it. So what happens when we know we need to take a step but we can't quite find our footing? Ellen Langer again. People think that if they think about it enough, they're going to get the right answer. But there's always more information. And the additional information could change the sense of what you're deciding. So you're all set to do this. Oh, maybe I should get a little more information. Now now you're going to go over there, and then you go back and forth. So analysis paralysis and ambivalence are um, a function of the belief there's a right decision to make. Now, since everything is always changing, everything looks different from different perspectives, even if it was had been a good decision for you in the past, doesn't mean it's a good decision for you right now. And people, once people recognize the strength that they actually have in appreciating and understanding different outcomes, the necessity to make the quote right decision becomes less important. So for me, you know, I, I am a, a surprisingly happy camp. <laughs> and, you know, if we're going to go to the movies together, Lisa, you can decide what movie because I'm going to be happy no matter what. And if, you know, Lisa, we're going to go out to eat, you can pick the restaurant because I'm going to be happy no matter what. And so when people realize and give themselves enough experience showing themselves that It's not the outcome, it's the way they understand the outcome that determines their experience. They're in control. And so the particular choice rarely matters. Thank you so much, Ellen. My pleasure. Thanks to my guests, Ellen Langer, Professor of Psychology at Harvard University. 
Dr Janneke Blylevens from RMIT and Dr Adrian Camilleri from UTS. And special thanks to Bridget Duclos for sharing her story. I'm Lisa Leong. Thanks for listening to This Working Life. It's produced by Zoe Ferguson, mixed by Kerry Dell. This episode was produced on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Until next time, work it, baby. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.